0: All right, we'll turn in your Bible to the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter one. Mark chapter one. Last week we introduced the Gospel of Mark. We looked at the first verse, which is essentially Mark's title for the book, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And we talked about the Gospel and why Mark is writing about its beginning and what it means that Jesus is the Christ what it means that he is the son of God. Today we're going to go on to look at verses two through fifteen. This is kind of generally considered to be the prologue, the introduction to the book. These verses here are loaded with important things for us to know as we begin reading Mark's gospel. In fact, it's almost like these verses are Mark kind of pulling back the curtain and showing you the reality before he starts telling the story because the story is going to have a lot of people who are confused and blind and whatnot. And he wants you, the reader, to know the truth before we get into the story. Okay? So I'm going to do my best to find a balance of explaining things fully enough for us to have a good understanding, but at the same time, moving fairly quickly because we want to keep pace with how Mark writes this fast-paced story. So you'll have to listen fast this morning. And here's what we'll be looking at today. You could put it under these four headings. First of all, in verses 2 through 8, Jesus' forerunner, John the Baptist. And then in verses 9 through 11, Jesus' commission at the Jordan River. Then verses 12 to 13, we'll see Jesus' preparation in the wilderness. And in verses 14 and 15, Jesus' proclamation in Galilee. So that's where we're headed this morning. So if you're there with me in Mark chapter 1, follow along. I'm going to start with verse 1 and we'll read down through verse 15. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan and he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. All right, well, let's begin with verses two through eight. Jesus's forerunner, John the Baptist. We start in verses two and three with this Old Testament quote, which is actually not a direct quote. It is a combination Of three different passages all kind of mashed together. They're from Isaiah and Malachi and Exodus. But Mark just says that it's from Isaiah. And when the Jews heard these quotes, they would know the fuller context that these quotes are taken out of. So for us to rightly interpret them, we should pay attention to the context too. The first one that we find is from Isaiah 40 verses 1 through 5. And here's what We find in Isaiah 40, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. If you know the book of Isaiah, you know this is in the second part. This is the part that is written to them while they're in exile. So this message is telling them this exile that you are experiencing that has happened because of your sin is going to end. You're going to be restored. God is going to come. And here's how the passage continues. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So that's part of what Mark is quoting here. And the idea is that God is coming. They're in exile. They're not where they're supposed to be, but God is coming. He's going to do something to end their exile and to rescue them. And then the passage continues, every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So this passage is the arrival of God to his people. It is the end, the finishing, of the judgment for their sins. Specifically, it's the end of exile, the end of that separation. It is comfort because it's a message that God is coming with forgiveness and restoration. Now, Mark refers to these, he gives us these three quotes, Isaiah, Malachi, and Exodus all mashed together, but he calls it Isaiah. Why? I mean, is it a misquote? Is it an error? I don't know if you caught, maybe like about a month ago, our National Secretary of Education was giving a speech and referred to, he said, I think it was Ronald Reagan who said, uh, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Well, he's saying that in the context of government providing education and helping people. If you know the quote, (laughs) that is... The worst misquote maybe in the history of the world. The original quote from Reagan is, the nine most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Because Reagan is saying the government should stay out of things. Is that what Isaiah is doing? Is he misquoting? Is he confused about what's going on in the Old Testament? Not at all. When he puts Isaiah and Malachi and Exodus all together and he says, as Isaiah the prophet said, what he wants you, the reader, to do is to think, what's the context of Isaiah? What is Isaiah writing about? And the whole second half of Isaiah is all about the end of exile and God coming and setting up his kingdom and restoring things to the way that they're supposed to be. And Mark is setting you up so that you understand the story of Jesus as the answer To what Isaiah was prophesying. Now, as we continue on, Malachi is one of the other sources for this quotation Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. You can hear that in what. Mark gives us in verses 2 and 3. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. He will sit. As a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. So the context of this quote is about God coming as well. But here, it's God coming in judgment. Who can stand the day of his arrival? The rhetorical question is who can possibly stand in God's judgment? And the messenger here is preparing the way before the arrival of God in judgment. Now, after the judgment has been carried out, the text says that the purified remnant, the people of God, will be pleasing to the Lord. But God's coming in judgment. So we have Isaiah telling us that God is coming to rescue and redeem and restore. We have Malachi saying God is coming to judge. And both of these together are what Mark is communicating to us. And then there's one more passage. Exodus 23, verse 20. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. This one in the original is actually probably most close to the language that's used by Mark but this verse is in the context of Israel in the wilderness preparing to enter the promised land it's in the midst then of the exodus and part of the significance here is we're in this situation where the the mosaic law is being given the old covenant is being given but the context is the exodus okay if we put all three of these things together, we're combining the big themes of exodus and the end of exile. In other words, Mark is setting up Jesus's story as a new exodus for God's people, and it's the true end of exile. Jesus will accomplish this new exodus, and he will be the true end of exile. And if it's a new exodus, then we should expect a new covenant as well. Just as the prophets promised, when God accomplishes this new Exodus, He's going to give His people a new covenant. But, as Malachi indicated, it also means judgment is coming. So, Mark presents Jesus bringing judgment, particularly on official Jerusalem and the temple, as well as coming to rescue His people. Now, These quotes also do something else as far as the setting. They kind of pull together the setting of the wilderness. The wilderness. In Isaiah, the voice is crying to prepare a way for the Lord in the wilderness. Malachi speaks of the messenger who is sent to prepare that way. And the Exodus passage takes place in the wilderness as God carries out the Exodus of his people from Egypt. Now, what is the wilderness like? Is the wilderness a place of danger and chaos? Yes, it is. But that's not all it is. It's also a place of hope, a place of preparation, a place of new beginnings. Now, Janine was just sharing a missionary story that she was listening to, um, a lady that had kind of kept a journal. I think she was with Wycliffe Bible Translators. And one of the things that they did, training their missionaries back in those days, she was going to Africa, they they would take the family that was going and they would put them out in the wilds of Africa for a couple of days on their own and they had to just survive Now, after they'd been trained and all of that. But they're out in the wilderness in preparation for the ministry that they're going to do. In some ways, that's what's going on here. The, The wilderness is a place of preparation. It was that way for Israel. It was a place of temptation and testing a place with dangers like starvation and snakes, but it was also a new beginning. They had left Egypt and slavery behind. God was in the wilderness, forming them into a new nation. God made a covenant with them. He gave them promises. He gave them his law, the things that would shape them as his people. He's preparing them for taking the promised land and living there as his people. And the wilderness is also a place of Of promise and opportunity. Think of the wilderness like condition of the world when it was first created. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void. It was empty and uninhabitable. It was a wilderness. But the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, and in the creation, the Spirit brings out of that wilderness, out of that chaos order paradise out of the wilderness and then god turns around and when he puts the people there he takes adam and he says look i'm putting you in the garden you're supposed to tend it and keep it but more than that there's wilderness outside there your job is to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth subdue it have dominion make the wilderness like the garden spread the paradise is essentially the message of what God tells Adam to do. Bring order out of the chaos, just like the Spirit of God did. And God does this with Israel. He brings order to the chaos of a slave people, forming them in the wilderness into his people. So for Mark, the wilderness is a place of testing and preparation. It's where God meets with his people. It's where Isaiah's vision of this great restoration begins. It's God sending his messenger to prepare the way and God himself will come and make the wilderness into a paradise. Now John's baptism when he comes is a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John breaks on the scene here in verse four. Just like the Old Testament prophets often called the nation to repentance, that's what John is doing. The nation is still experiencing the judgment of God, spiritual exile, and they need to repent and return to him. We're going to talk towards the end of the message this morning a little bit more about what repentance looks like. But what would forgiveness of sins look like? Well, it would mean that the consequences of their sins would be taken away. The spiritual exile would end. God would return. God's kingdom would be set up. When we hear the phrase forgiveness of sins, we tend to think exclusively in a personal or individual context, forgiving my sins. But that's not likely how the Jews would have heard this message. They'd be thinking national as a people. Now, it is true that Jesus came to forgive sins individually and that in order to be saved, you must personally repent. You can't be saved just by belonging to the right group of people. But Jesus, Mark will show us, is calling a new Israel. And that new Israel, the forgiven people, will be made up of those who repent of their sins. The message of repentance that Mark hits you with right off the bat, through the lips of John the Baptist, is a message of repentance choice. You have a choice to make. Which side of the line will you be on? Will you be part of God's kingdom people? If so, that means repentance and believing the good news. There are parallels between John the Baptist and Moses, and Mark is presenting this as a new exodus, so that shouldn't surprise us. Paul tells the Corinthians that the Israelites were baptized into Moses in the sea. In other words, going through the Red Sea was their baptism. Moses handed off his leadership to Joshua. John will hand things over to Jesus. Moses brought the people as far as the Jordan River. And now John does the same. They're about to enter the true promised land under Jesus. And the Jordan is the boundary of that land. The question is, who will repent and go through the waters of the Jordan to enter the promised land under Jesus as the true Israel. Now, it's important to realize that the baptism itself is meaningless apart from repentance, true repentance. It's only significant as an outward sign of an inner reality. And Mark By beginning his gospel with this message from John, puts you, the reader, in the place of decision. As you read this gospel, will you be one who repents and joins the true Israel, or will you reject John's message? Now, there's a lot of debate today about baptism. What's the right way to baptize? Should it be immersion under the water or just sprinkling or pouring? We were talking about this towards the end of our adult class this morning. Should it be only those who have already professed faith in Christ, or should babies be baptized? I'm not going to go into any detail this morning on that, because that's really just not what this passage is about. John's baptism is different in meaning from Christian baptism today, so we really can't shape our whole understanding of baptism from this passage But at the same time, it's true that this comes before Christian baptism and Christian baptism would be influenced by what they knew of John's baptism and Jesus undergoing that baptism too. I'll just point out three details while we're here in the text. First, as we just noted, John's baptism is meaningless apart from a prior repentance and commitment. Second, the word baptize literally means immerse or dip in the water. And the third thing, why the Jordan River? I mean, if all he was doing was sprinkling, you could do that anywhere. But to immerse a large number of people, you need a place like the Jordan to do it. And like I said, that's not the main point of the message, or excuse me, of the passage today. Those are just some observations that we should make while we're there in the text. Look at the description that you have of John that Mark gives to us. Dressed in camel's hair, wearing a leather belt. If you were to go to the Old Testament, there's a story where King Ahaziah um, has been given a message from God through a prophet, and his messengers bring that to him. And he asks what kind of man had given his messengers a message about his death. They answered, He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And Ahaziah answered, It's Elijah the Tishbite. So that description marked him as Elijah. Now, as Mark's gospel goes on, we're going to find out that John the Baptist is identified as Elijah. Not that Elijah is reincarnated, but when the Old Testament prophesied a day when Elijah would come, this is what it was talking about. And Mark is signaling that right off the bat with the way that John the Baptist is dressed. And what is John's food? He's eating locusts and wild honey. Now, both of those things are permitted by the Old Testament law. Locusts are the only insect that the law allowed. You can read about that in Leviticus 11. But the symbolism here, locusts often symbolize judgment and honey often symbolizes God's blessing. They're going to the promised land. It's a land of milk and honey. So here you have this prophet in the mold of Elijah. And the message that he has is a message of both repentance and blessing, depending on which side of the line you come down on. John is a forerunner. He says, after me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. In the disciple-master relationship in those days, a disciple would do everything for his master that a slave would normally do except untying his shoes. That was even beneath a, a disciple. John says, I'm not even worthy to do that for this coming one. He's that much greater. And the coming one, according to John, will bring the Holy Spirit. Just like the Old Testament prophets had prophesied, the Spirit will be poured out through this Messiah. Now the arrival of the Holy Spirit, that's appropriate in a wilderness context like Mark gives us here. In the Old Testament, the Spirit accompanied God's people in the wilderness in a limited way. But there was this anticipation, as you read the prophets, of a day coming when the spirit would be given without measure. The Old Testament prophets pointed forward to a day when that spirit would be given to God's people. So Ezekiel says God will put his spirit within them. Joel says God will pour out his spirit on his people. So when John says that Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit, he's saying that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's Old Testament prophecies, prophecies, promises of giving the Spirit to his people. Well, that's verses two through eight. You can see that these are loaded verses. Let's continue on. Verses 9 through 11, Jesus' commission at the Jordan River. Now John is essentially going to hand over the reins to Jesus. He has prepared the way for him, and now Jesus' ministry begins with being baptized by John. Just like Joshua took Moses' place, just like Elisha took Elijah's place, now Jesus will take over in John's place as the one that people should follow. And so Jesus is baptized by John. Now, Obviously, this raises a question. John's baptism is a baptism of repentance. Why is Jesus being baptized? Does Jesus have something to repent of? Does he have any sins to be forgiven? Jesus is being baptized as a representative of his people. All those who by faith will follow him will repent of their sins, as John called them to, and who will therefore form the new people of God, the true Israel. Undergoing baptism is symbolic of the judgment of death. That's why Paul connects baptism to like the Red Sea. And and it's also connected in the New Testament to the flood. It's that the waters of judgment pictured here. It's not that Jesus deserves God's judgment. He doesn't have any sin, nothing to repent of. But he's identifying with his people as their representative. He's going to take God's judgment on himself for all who will identify with him. Now, just notice how Mark kind of shifts things here. In verse 5, we have all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem going out to be baptized by John. Now, that doesn't literally mean every person. We know there were still lots of people in Jerusalem who were remaining enemies of this whole thing but you have crowds of people coming out now in verse 9 the picture narrows down to one one man who will be baptized and who will go on to face God's judgment for all of those other people who respond to the message of repentance And then we see that the heavens are torn open. Again, here, Mark is picking up the language of the Old Testament prophets, Isaiah 64, 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. It's a call for God to act, to save his people, to bring his promised kingdom, to bring salvation and order and peace. Mark is telling us that that time is now arriving. At Mount Sinai, in Exodus chapter 19, we read that the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. In other words, before God could come down, the people had to consecrate themselves They had to prepare for his arrival. And that's what John's message has been. Get ready. He's coming. Consecrate yourselves. Repent. And in Jesus, God is arriving. Jesus sees the Spirit descend on him like a dove. Why a dove? I mean, because of this, we associate the Holy Spirit with a dove, But nowhere in the Old Testament is the Holy Spirit associated with a dove. So where does this come from? I think there's two Old Testament texts that if we put them together, it makes sense of this for us. One has to do with the flood. So in Noah's day, when the flood waters subsided, Noah sent out a dove to see what would happen. The first time, the dove returned, having found no place to land. The second time he sends out the dove, the dove comes back with an olive branch showing that new life is now growing on the earth right the waters of judgment have come they've subsided and now there's new life and then the third time the dove doesn't come back at all and noah knows that the earth is ready for them to come out of the boat now remember the flood waters were judgment on the earth every living thing died but what did god do he brings forth a new world, a a recreation out of those waters. So the dove over the waters calls to mind the new creation that comes out of the judgment of the flood. Combine that with what we find back in the beginning in Genesis 1. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, hovering like a bird. And what does the spirit do? The spirit brings forth order and life out of the formless and empty creation. So just like in Noah's day, the spirit over the waters calls to mind the recreation that comes out of the the formlessness and emptiness of those waters, both in the creation and in the flood. So when we have Jesus now in the waters of the Jordan undergoing baptism, which symbolizes God's judgment, just like the flood did, and then we have the Spirit hovering over those waters, we should realize that Mark is telling us to expect a new creation. At this point, I think you have to say that if Mark was alive today, he would probably be a good movie writer. His use of visual cues and symbolism is extraordinary. And that's exactly what Jesus is going to do. He's going to bring out a new creation. In his life and death and resurrection, he brings forth a new creation, a new people in the power of the Spirit. At the same time, the Spirit coming down on Jesus here is marking him out as being anointed for a task, for a vocation. In the Old Testament, when God called someone to a specific task, often they were anointed with oil to mark that calling. And the best example of this is a king. A king was anointed, marked out for his task of kingship. The anointing with oil symbolized the Holy Spirit. The Spirit would be the one to empower them for this task that God is calling them to. And here, Jesus is being anointed for the task before him. He will be Israel's promised king, her Messiah. Let me just give you two brief examples of Old Testament texts that promise this regarding the Messiah and the Spirit. Isaiah 11 is one example. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And then we find in Isaiah 42, behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. So the Spirit, descending like a dove, tells us that Jesus is being commissioned to his task. Kingship, redemption, salvation. And it tells us that God is bringing about, through the work of Jesus, a new creation people. Then we have a voice from heaven. Mark tells us that the voice from heaven says, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Putting it in different words, you could say that what God the Father is saying here is, because you are my unique son, I have chosen you for the task upon which you are about to enter. By the way, as a side note here, sometimes we say, well, where do we find the Trinity in scripture? You won't find the word Trinity. But a scene like this shows you the Trinity at work. We have God the Father speaking from heaven. We have the Spirit descending like a dove. And we have the Son, Jesus, there in the waters being baptized. Each of them different. Doing something different. But completely in agreement as to the task that they are setting Jesus out on and empowering him to do. So God the Father here says the same thing about Jesus as what Mark said in the first verse. He's the Son of God. And of course, there are Old Testament texts that are in the background here too. Last week we looked at Psalm two. You remember verse seven says, "The Lord said to me, "You are my Son." It's the basis for the Messiah being the king. It's the basis for the fact that, that all the nations and rulers are ultimately going to bow before Him in submission the basis for the fact that this king will rule over the whole earth in justice and righteousness. We just read Isaiah 42, verse 1. My chosen one in whom my soul delights. The father's words are an echo of that. But I think what, what God the father says there, this voice from heaven, also calls to mind the story of Abraham and Isaac in Genesis 22. God says to Abraham, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And now God's only beloved son, Jesus, has come to be sacrificed as an offering to God on behalf of his people, taking their judgment on himself. As we move then to verses 12 and 13, we see Jesus' preparation in the wilderness. And we're told that the Spirit drives Jesus into the wilderness. It's the same word like when you see a demon being cast out. It's a very strong, forceful word. The Spirit drives Jesus into the wilderness. This is the necessary consequence of his calling, his vocation that he has been given. It's the same Spirit who's doing this. And it's going to be a period of testing and preparation, like Israel's preparation for the promised land. Jesus will be there 40 days, just like Moses was 40 days on Mount Sinai, and Elijah was 40 days in the wilderness before Mount Horeb, and Israel was 40 years in the wilderness before coming into Canaan. And note that it is Satan doing the testing, but it is the Holy Spirit who is orchestrating it. This is not something that is outside of God's control or even something that God just finds himself having to react to. No, it's the Holy Spirit who orchestrates this event. Jesus's determination to repent on behalf of his people leads to opposition from Satan. And Mark is different than the other gospel writers in that he doesn't resolve it here because what he wants you to understand is that the rest of the story from here on out, we're going to continue to see this opposition from Satan and from demons throughout the story of the gospel. And then Mark says something that is unusual. He's the only gospel writer that includes the fact that out there in the wilderness, Jesus was with the wild beasts. Why does he include that? I'm not entirely sure, but there's a couple of things that come to mind. One is that there may be echoes of David's story here. Samuel had anointed David to be king, but David was still, at that point, a shepherd. And David says later, when he goes to fight Goliath, look, I've already fought lions and other wild beasts, and God empowered me to do that. I can handle Goliath. In other words... Being out in the wilderness and facing the wild beasts was preparation for the demonic forces that he was going to face. And it may be that Mark is telling us Jesus is being prepared to do that in the mold of a David. At the same time, this is taking place in the wilderness, and we should think about the symbolism and meaning of the wilderness here. It's a place of preparation and testing, as we've seen. Israel faced testing in the wilderness in preparation for entering the promised land. Moses spent time preparing in the wilderness. Elijah spent time preparing in the wilderness. There are echoes of all of those stories already here in Mark. But the wilderness is also a place where things are not yet what they are designed to be. A place where there is danger and chaos and disorder. So something needs to be done to the wilderness to bring it to be what it should be. In the Old Testament, the prophets told the people that when the Messiah's kingdom came, the wilderness would be transformed into a paradise and there would be no more ravenous beasts. For example, the entire chapter of Isaiah 35 is all about this. It tells us at the beginning, the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. That's what's going to happen when God comes to his people. The wilderness will be turned into a paradise. And later in the chapter, it says, no lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. Ezekiel says much the same thing in Ezekiel 34. So picture the, just the, the theme that's being set up there. At the creation of the world, the earth was formless and void, and then the Spirit worked to bring order out of that chaos. God gives the creation mandate to Adam and says, Out there is a wilderness. You be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion. Take the garden and tend it. Push the borders out. We have all these Old Testament prophetic promises of Messiah's reign Ezekiel gives us a vision of the temple. You remember the the, the grand vision of the temple that Ezekiel has? What happens there? The water flows out from the temple, out into the, the land, into the wilderness, and it turns it into green land where things grow. John's vision in Revelation, the river in the new heavens and new earth, the river with the tree of life on either side with its fruit, and it says nothing unclean or detestable will ever enter it. No ravenous beasts will be there. All of this is indicating Jesus is going to bring a kingdom that will answer all of those predictions of the Old Testament prophets. It will fulfill what God has promised for his people. And we also see that Mark tells us the angels were ministering to him. Just like the angel guided Israel through the wilderness. Just like Elijah had an angel minister to him in the wilderness. Well, let's look at the last two verses this morning, verses 14 and 15, Jesus' proclamation in Galilee. This has to do with the kingdom. The kingdom is at hand or near. Why? Because God is now acting to fulfill, to realize these kingdom promises. We're going to talk more about the kingdom as we go through the Gospel of Mark, so I won't really do it this morning because this is the content of, of Jesus's message, but for this morning, just take note, it is Jesus's arrival on the scene that is the decisive event that begins the fulfillment of this kingdom promise. And Jesus says, repent and believe in the gospel. Well, let's start with the question, what is the gospel? Remember what we saw last week, The good news is that Jesus has arrived as king. Just like the arrival of Caesar was supposedly good news, or a great victory that Caesar would win would be good news, and the gospel is the announcement of that victory, Jesus' arrival and victory, the, the one that he's going to win at the cross and in his resurrection, that will be good news, gospel, for the whole world. The gospel is the announcement that Jesus is king, that Jesus is victorious. But isn't the gospel about salvation? Yes, because King Jesus is forming a new kingdom, a new people, and those people will be those who are saved, those whom he represents, those whose sins he takes on himself on the cross, those whom he gives eternal life. So the gospel is about salvation, but it's a much bigger thing than we tend to think about. And King Jesus will become a king in a way that is unlike the kings of this world, unlike Caesar. He will become king precisely through his death on behalf of his people. He will be a suffering servant, an unexpected messiah. Now, if that's what the gospel is, what does it mean to repent and believe? We saw that John's message of repentance had to do with the fact that Israel was still in spiritual exile. Still experiencing the results, the judgment for their sin. So they needed to return to the Lord, to act in faithfulness to him. And the word that they used to describe this is repent. And this is how people could become part of God's kingdom. When God's Messiah came to rule, they wanted to be part of his kingdom people. But if they remained in their sins, they would remain separated from him. Now, in Jesus' day, there were a lot of different opinions about how the kingdom was going to arrive. Some people believed that God's kingdom would come if they would only keep the law in exhaustive detail. In other words, they would earn the kingdom through moral behavior. Others believed that God's kingdom would come if they would just act zealously on God's behalf, taking up arms against the foreigners who had invaded the promised land. In other words, God's kingdom would come when they revolted against their Roman overlords. Others thought that this peaceful kingdom that the Messiah was supposed to bring would mean instead that the way to bring it in would be to, to go along with the Romans to go along with Caesar, go along to get along, seek peace. And so they would choose loyalty to Caesar. The Jewish historian Josephus was in that last category. He's one who wanted to go along with the Romans and the Romans were happy to have his help. In his autobiography, he tells of one particular instance which I think sheds light on this idea of repentance and the kingdom of God. Now, this is in A.D. 66. So Jesus' death and resurrection, A.D. 30. A.D. 70 is the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. This is four years before that, A.D. 66. This is the great Jewish revolt that is going on. And Josephus is trying to help the Romans settle things down. And so he goes to a city called Sepphoris. Here's on the map, you can see Jerusalem and Bethlehem are down here. Sepphoris is up here. This is Nazareth, where Jesus grew up. They're about seven miles apart. Now, Sepphoris, just to give you background, they had participated in a revolt against Rome and the whole city had been destroyed. In Jesus's day, they were rebuilding. It's very likely That's why Joseph settled in Nazareth was because he knew he would have work as a carpenter or an artisan in Sepphoris. So it very well may be, they live in the small town of Nazareth and he goes daily to Sepphoris, the big city, to help rebuild and that's his job. And if that's the case, then Jesus was probably there all the time too, helping his father do that work. In AD 66 though, Josephus goes there because there is an uprising that is bubbling up. And there's a revolutionary there in the city of Sepphoris named Jesus. Not our Jesus. If you read Josephus's works, there are at least 23 different men named Jesus. It was a very common name, okay? Not our Jesus, different Jesus. But this, G, this Jesus in Sepphoris, knowing that Josephus was coming, plotted to kill him. Josephus learns of the plot and he has Jesus brought to himself and here's what josephus says happened he says i then called jesus to me by himself and told him that i was not a stranger to that treacherous design he had against me nor was i ignorant by whom he was sent for that however i would forgive him what he had done already if he would repent of it and be faithful to me hereafter that word be faithful you could also translate that have faith If you would have faith or believe in me. Okay. And thus, upon his promise to do all that I desired, I let him go. And that's exactly what happened. The rebellion was settled. Sepphoris opened their gates to the Romans and they were spared because of it in the destruction that came in the following years. But that little section is fascinating to me because it gives us insight into how these words were understood in Jesus' day. Forgive. Repent be faithful or have faith, believe. Josephus is telling this revolutionary that he needs to give up on his way of achieving the kingdom of God and instead trust Josephus' way of doing things. But the language is literally, I told him to repent and believe in me, repent and have faith in me. That's what he says. And here's the point. True repentance and faith is not simply feeling sorry about your sin and trusting Jesus to deal with the consequences of that sin. Yes, that's a vital part of it. Don't hear me saying that that's not the case. But it's so much more. When Jesus says repent and believe in the gospel, he's saying Give up on your way and trust me for my way, which is revealed in the good news, the announcement of my kingship. When Jesus says repent and believe in the gospel, it means a radical, life-altering change of purpose and worldview. It means adopting Jesus's way of kingdom life. It means following in the footsteps of the Messiah who suffered and died in faithfulness to God's call on his life. It means believing that Jesus really is king. And that means he's king of every area of life. When you open your mail and you get what looks like a really good coupon to a store, you might be disappointed when you read the fine print and you find that some exclusions apply Well, with Jesus' kingship, there are no exclusions. He is king of everything and everyone. Now, not all have submitted to his kingship, but that day will come. And what that means is the way you and I should live today is that we live believing that it all belongs to him. His rules, his law, his kingship, believe the good news that Jesus is king. To wrap up, uh, as far as application this morning, I want to ask you three questions and I'm not going to answer them. I'm just going to leave them here for you to think about. The first one has to do with how you read the gospel of Mark. And the question is, are your eyes open? As we read Mark, we're going to encounter a book full of bewildered, confused, blinded people. But Mark expects you, the reader, to remember the truths that he's revealed in these verses here in the prologue. This is the -the behind-the-scenes reality behind the events of the gospel that we're going to read. Second question. As you consider the message of John and Jesus... About repentance, have you made your choice? Which side of the line will, be your, will you be on? Will you be part of God's kingdom people? And the third question for how we live today is your gospel big enough? Is it simply about a personal relationship and a ticket to heaven? Or Does it go beyond that and provide you with a calling, a vocation, a purpose for your work in this world, Monday through Saturday, as well as on Sunday? Let's close in prayer. Lord, as we've heard these words that Mark gives us here near the beginning of his gospel, I pray that they would be challenging to us. I pray that you would help us to see that our eyes need to be opened and our gospel needs to be bigger. We need to understand the reality of this good news that you are king. Teach us how to live in a way that is consistent with the full reality of that gospel message. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.